morning, church. Hello. My name is Josh. Um, I'm a pastoral intern here at Christ Community. I've been here for about six months now under Ryan and the other pastoral ministry. So Today it's my privilege to get to do the scripture reading for you guys. So if you are able, stand for the reading of God's word. Today's reading will be from Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, See, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and its foal, and they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. A very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, Who is this? The crowds were saying, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth and Galilee. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for allowing us to gather today on Palm Sunday. I pray that, like the crowd of the people in Matthew, we would wait expectantly for you, and that we would rejoice at your arrival. I pray that the joy of the Lord wells up in the hearts of all at our church this Easter. Give Patrick an eagerness and a power as he speaks to us through your word this morning. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Josh. Church, you may be seated. Well, Josh gave you the introduction. He had the privilege of teaching to our largest youth group ever this Wednesday at 108 students. That's amazing. Numbers certainly aren't our goal, but numbers do represent people that can hear the gospel. So we're really encouraged about what Ryan and Josh are endeavoring to do along with that uh, team of youth volunteers. Good morning, church. All right, we're doing pretty good. Love to see your bright, shiny faces, even though it's a cold morning. It is Palm Sunday. Uh, It's the day of the week, a day of the Easter season where we commemorate the triumphal entry of Christ and then the procedure that goes through the week, which leads to his death, burial, and his resurrection. This morning, there's only really one memory I have of Palm Sunday, and some of you might have heard this story before, but half of this church is new since the last time I preached this sermon. And half of you probably, the other half probably don't even remember, so it's fine. I remember as a young kid, one Palm Sunday in particular, I was a uh, student, probably about five or six years old. I was at Voyager's Church in Orange County, California, and I was lined up outside the sanctuary with every kid in the children's ministry. Our plan was to hold palm fronds and walk in singing Hosanna. Anybody else experienced that before? Okay. That day was a day unlike any other because I was holding my palm frond, but for some reason, I was either given a defective one, a kid knocked it, or my enthusiastic waving broke it. And so as a five, six-year-old perfectionist, here I had a broken palm frond, and I was devastated. I was bringing shame to my family and the Lord. (laughs) And so I was desperately pleading with everyone around me to trade palm fronds. Look, it's bigger. You can hold it with two hands. 
remember asking my brother, will you trade with me? He was a year and a half younger than me to no avail. No one wanted to trade their perfectly good palm frond with mine. And so the moment came in for my shame to be revealed to the church, and we all walked in, and I can't remember anything past that. I don't know what happened after that. I think it was completely fine. But that's what I picture for Palm Sunday. It's the pageantry of the day of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But why is it a triumph? Palm Sunday marks the beginning of Holy Week, yes, commemorating the events leading up to Jesus' like I said, death, burial, and resurrection. It was a triumph that Jesus would be dead in a week. Is that why it's a triumph? Or is the significance found in the symbolism and the meaning of everything that takes place on Christ's entry into Jerusalem? So this morning, our aim is to recognize that the glory of the Lord has returned to Jerusalem as Jesus enters the city. But there are a lot of reactions to Jesus' entry. There are reactions that on the surface are good. They are right, but the motivations behind them are false and untrue and imperfect. Brothers and sisters, this morning as we look at the triumphal entry, I know many of us know the elements of the story. We've become so familiar with it, we might, be, have, go, we might have begun to take for granted the symbolism and the meaning that Christ intended to display and what God has promised us, His people, through Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Before we do that and jump into Matthew 21, as Josh already read, I'd like for you to pray with me one more time. Our Lord and our God, we ask for your help We beseech your spirit to be the teacher this morning, that you will engage us with your truth. You will give us eyes to see the magnificent glory put on display that day so many years ago. May we see it, believe it, be beholden to it. For God, I would ask that it may be a triumph that we continue to celebrate even to this day, that your son entered as both Lord and Messiah. May we see and believe as a result of this morning. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, we will be in Matthew chapter 21, looking through the first 11 verses. We're also going to be in some other places as well, because every gospel gives a triumphal entry account. Matthew just happens to have most of the details, and so we're going to be in Matthew primarily, but we will reference in the other gospel accounts concerning Jesus and his triumphal entry. And so the first thing we must recognize, the reason why it was a triumph, because it declares and proclaims that Jesus is the Lord. Read with me again in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. We know from the Gospel of John that the triumphal entry doesn't happen in isolation. It actually comes on the heels of the mighty miracle of Jesus healing Lazarus, bringing him back from death to life. Word had spread to the surrounding villages around Jerusalem and the city itself, and so many people were venturing to Bethany to hear what Jesus had done and to see for themselves that Lazarus was dead and now was alive. And yet in this moment, Jesus, knowing his time had come to fulfill his ultimate purpose, he directs his disciples with a precise command. The disciples up until this point, I'm sure you're familiar in some ways, have received many commands from Jesus ranging from extremely simple to complex and absurd. They were asked to feed 10,000 people when they had no food. Jesus made them wait an extra two days to even go heal Lazarus. 
Jesus had asked Peter to walk on water. So by comparison, commanding them to find the colt of a donkey does not seem significant, but it ultimately is. The significance is not found in the miraculous appearance of a colt, but recognize Christ's specific knowledge of the event as it unfolds. Christ directs them with certainty, with His specific divine knowledge, and the disciples needed to follow it precisely. And so as the Lord, Jesus is all-knowing. He knows His hour has, and His time has come, so He precisely commands His disciples. Jesus has divine knowledge. He knows things only God can know. In the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus, interacting with the crowds around Him, says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil thoughts in your heart? And in Luke chapter 5, verse 22, speaking to again the crowd around him, Jesus, being aware of their reasonings, answered them and said, why are you reasoning in your hearts against me? And so when Jesus tells the disciples to go ahead of him into the town to find a donkey immediately, he does so out of his divine knowledge. He is not predicting that a donkey will be there. He's not assuming that a donkey would be there. He knows where there will be the colt of a donkey, an unridden donkey. And he knows what must be said to the owner if they are present. The Lord has need of it. His perfect knowledge ultimately includes himself. Jesus knows with certainty and with clarity who he is, that he is the Lord. And so as Lord, what is it describing? Jesus is also the master. The rationale of taking another person's property is is not an issue here because Jesus is the king over all creation, the rightful owner over all creation. And so the disciples are stopped. They're merely to say, the Lord has need of it. And so Jesus has proven his commands are trustworthy ultimately, so they follow through the commands. And upon untying the colt, we we read in Luke that they're stopped. What are you doing? And they issue a command, just as Jesus said, the Lord has need of it. Now, what's amazing about this, Jesus describes himself as the Lord. One of the few times where Jesus says, this is who I am. He reveals who he is. Throughout the Gospels, the the Pharisees are constantly asking, by what authority do you do this? Who are you that you can speak to us this way? And he keeps quiet, responding to their question, often with another question. This is the unique transformation that his time has come. Jesus is declaring, I am the Lord. I am the prince of all lords. I am the Lord of lords. I am the master, the one who possesses all power and authority. This title ultimately is not borrowed from pagan culture or even an invention of the early church. The title of Lord ascribed to Jesus comes from Jesus himself. So Jesus knows who he is with particular clarity. He is the promised shepherd king of Ezekiel chapter 34. I want you to read some of this prophecy with me in Ezekiel 34, and we're going to go through a couple of verses through this whole chapter, but it's what God is bringing to fulfillment in Christ at the moment of the triumphal entry. Read this with me. In Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 1, this is what the Lord God says to the shepherds. Now, the shepherds here are the kings. These are the kings of Israel being described as shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Shouldn't the shepherds feed their flock? You eat the fat, wear the wool, and butcher the fattened animals, but you do not tend the flock. You have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the loss. Instead, you have ruled them with violence and cruelty. 
They were scattered for a lack of a shepherd. See, this is God speaking, see, I myself will search for my flock and look for them. As a shepherd looks for his sheep on the day of On the day he is among his scattered flock, so I will look for my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and total darkness. I will save my flock. They will no longer be prey, for I will judge between one sheep and another. I will establish over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will shepherd them. He will tend them himself and be their shepherd. This is a powerful proclamation of conveying to the shepherd kings of Israel long before that they have failed in their duties to be the priest kings that God commanded them to be, to be servants for their people, to lead them in righteous living and worship, but they had failed. They had failed miserably. Even the good ones had blind spots that we read in Scripture. They didn't get it perfect. And so what is God declaring? I myself will shepherd and be the Lord over my people. I will be their master. But notice what he does. God is saying, I myself will shepherd them. And then he concludes in verse 23, and I will establish my servant David, a king in the line of David. So we have two things that, most bo- that both must be true in this passage. God himself will rule, and that rule will come through a person in the line of David. But God himself is doing it. This is why it's important that Jesus is the God-man. He fulfills both qualities. God himself is ruling, but he comes from the line of David. And where they have failed, this Lord would succeed. And so God himself will shepherd his people. And so as Lord over Israel, he will lead them in righteousness and in worship. And so what is Jesus doing in this moment? Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies that came before. In fact, he is fulfilling every single one of them. The prophecies regarding the Messiah. So first, Jesus is Lord, but Jesus is also the Messiah, the promised anointed Messiah. Read with me in verse 4 through 6, 7, excuse me. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, see, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt. Then they laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. In retrospect, the disciples understood what was taking place. But in this moment, they certainly weren't. In fact, as we read in the other gospel accounts, they seem caught up by the excitement of the crowd's glamour and adornment of Jesus. This messianic fervor that had built up over the whole city, the disciples were clearly a part of that, assuming that Jesus was coming as a political ruler. And so Jesus wasn't just asking for a donkey to ride into the city. He was fulfilling every detail of God's promise. They didn't know that this prophecy needed to be fulfilled. It wasn't in their thinking in the moment. But nonetheless, Jesus fulfills every promise, both big and small, that prove his claim that he is both Lord and Messiah. And so Matthew quotes the prophecy from Zechariah 9.9 to show us exactly what Jesus was doing. We might have become so familiar with this story that we take for granted the symbolism being put on display for us. So we should ask the question, was Jesus riding a donkey merely to fulfill a prophecy, or is God's prophecy concerning the donkey a message to understand? Well, it's certainly the latter. 
And here are the three ideals and symbol messages that are portrayed in Jesus riding a donkey. First is to recognize that as Messiah, Jesus is a humble servant. Unlike the self-serving kings that we read in Ezekiel 34 and other kings that have come after him throughout history, King Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. The Apostle Paul will describe his rule and his ministry in Philippians 2 when he came to earth, that he came in the form of a servant. See, we need only look back at the end of the last chapter. So if you have your Bible open, look at me back in Matthew 20, verse 28. So it's not that far from the triumphal entry. And what does he say? Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for ransom of many. See, kings rode horses ultimately to elevate themselves in the eyes of their people. Instead, here, Jesus is riding a donkey to elevate God in the eyes of his people. He is the Messiah, and he's the humble servant as the Messiah of his people. Where the priestly kings that came before failed, he is succeeding. The second point, though, as Messiah, he is the peacemaker. See, kings wouldn't have ridden donkeys into town but their political emissaries or diplomats would have. Jesus' messiahship is not a military conquest, but a civil procession displaying his type of rule. Juxtapose this with a Roman citizen's understanding of triumphal entries. If you are a student of history, you'll know to have a triumph given to you is a prestigious honor in the Roman world. It was given to conquering kings and generals Emperors for their great accomplishments in conquering land and subduing people. And in their triumph, which would often be years after their conquest, it would be awarded to them by the Senate, and it would be a festivities taking up the whole city, and their army would be allowed to march in to cross the Rubicon, and at the front of the procession is the king, the emperor, the general, and behind them would be their army, the conquered people putting on display for laughter, ridicule, and mocking, and then all the plunder that they took on their conquest. This would be to show and to demonstrate the might of the Roman Empire. Don't mess with us. This is a different triumph that Jesus is putting on. This is not of military conquest, but a civil proclamation of someone bringing the terms of peace. His message in the Gospels has been to herald the good news of God's kingdom, and to those that hear this message must repent and believe. And so he is God's servant bringing a message of peace, not war. Jesus, as the Messiah, is the peacemaker, not the war maker. And last, as Messiah, he is also the burden bearer. Donkeys were and still are beasts of burden, are they not? Their life is to work and to serve their master bearing the weight and toil of all the work that needs to be done. Jesus is the burden bearer for the sins of the world. See, Jesus' entry takes place just before the yearly Jewish festival of Passover. If you're unfamiliar, the, the Passover is the Old Testament's primary celebration, foreshadowing a future sacrifice as a final payment for sin. The Passover memorializes the last plague that God issued against Egypt. That plague took place where all the firstborn sons in a household were killed if a lamb's blood was not shed on top of the doorpost. 
And so death passed over, that's where we get the term Passover, death passed over the families where the shedding of blood covers them. So if there was blood on the doorpost, the firstborn son would not die. And so God commanded the people of Israel to practice the Passover festival yearly, to commemorate it. They were to celebrate what God had done in the past for one component. They're to continue to sacrifice a lamb yearly to cover the people's sin in the present and to look ahead into a single final sacrifice that would end the need to shed blood for people's sins in totality. And so the Mosaic Law, to probably none of your surprise, um, is pretty strict about how you celebrate the Passover. It's rigid. This is how you do it. This is the way. And so one of those details in particular was a command to bring in your sacrificial animal into your family's house on the 10th day of Passover. Passover happened on the 14th day. Well, that date and timing coincides with Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. The symbolism and picture of the city of God, the house of God, which is Jerusalem, is welcoming in their lamb into their house to live with them for another four days before the sacrifice is to take place. Jesus is the Messiah and the burden bearer of sin. And so Jesus is being welcomed and ushered into a house and the people are unaware of what they're doing because as the temple and the people are bringing in the lamb, so is the whole people of God bringing in God's lamb into their house. And so we look at these details, and Jesus, as the Messiah, has fulfilled every prophecy concerning the Messiah. He is cementing in their minds and in ours that he is worthy of the title of both Lord and Messiah. And as such, he is worthy to rule, he is worthy to receive worship, and he's worthy to save. Ultimately, Jesus is worthy. See, the disciples obeyed Jesus, retrieving a donkey's colt and assisting him in getting on the animal. And as they head into the city, Mark and Luke describe the disciples as the ones who begin to praise. They start this whole commotion off, but their praise is infectious as other onlookers begin to join in. No doubt the previous day's events have stirred up this messianic fervor among the people hearing that Jesus had brought someone back to life. And so in a whirlwind of excitement, The people display, probably without knowing, mind you, Jesus' worthiness to be their Lord and Messiah. So despite the crowd's insufficient knowledge, they declare to us what is ultimately true of him, that first he is worthy to rule. Verse 8 says, a very large crowd spread their clothes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Other gospel accounts say they cut palm fronds, or they gathered palm fronds because they didn't grow at this time of year, and were now laying them down in the road. See, laying a cloak on the road while a king or ruler walks over it symbolizes rule and authority. In no small way, the people are declaring to Jesus, we accept your rule over us, for you are the honored king. They're showing their submission to him, saying, we place ourselves at your feet, even to walk over us if necessary. It's a pretty powerful statement, and it is true. So though the people declare that he is worthy to rule, and he certainly is, why do they insist he's worthy to rule? Why are they so easy to declare and to lay their robes and to to proclaim that he is worthy to rule over them? Here we need to reveal the motives behind their proclamations. Their praise assumes he will give them what they want as a ruler. 
a political state of Israel separate from Rome, increasing in power and prestige under his rule. Their their actions and affirmations of the people present show us some deep biblical irony. They are saying and doing the right thing despite having incomplete and insufficient knowledge of what Jesus is clearly going to do with his rule. And that's most clearly seen, the irony, in their praise. For he is first worthy to rule, but then he's worthy of worship. Verse 9, Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! During the Passover celebration, the people would sing and quote Psalm 113 to 118, the Hallel. They would sing this regularly. It accompanies Passover. The culmination of the Hallel was verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 18, which is what's quoted here. It's the anticipation of the Messiah King who saves. Hosanna literally means save us now. In in its context, it's both a prayer and a praise. It requests God's provision and protection while affirming his nature as being the provider and protector. And so God, in this moment, and by extension Jesus, his servant, become the objects of the crowd's prayer and praise. They're fixated and focused on him. Yet, unlike the, just like the previous point, they're unaware that God, in the person of Christ, is in their midst, saving them. They worship and praise what they think they know about Jesus, that he is a king in the line of David coming to make war with Rome, and yet Jesus is declaring that he has come first and foremost to make peace with God. They worship what they know in part, but not in whole. It is imperfect, insufficient. But they nonetheless declare to us that Jesus is worthy of worship. There's an imagery in this point, if you go back and read the beginning, the crowds then went ahead of him, and those followed behind shouted. That's some picturesque imagery of what took place centuries before as the Ark of the Covenant passed over the the Jordan River, and surrounded Jericho. What does it say and describe in those testimony accounts that the people of God, the army of God, preceded the ark and followed the ark, shouting shouts of praise? And so the conquering over Palestine and that area of the promised land was a foreshadowing of the conquering of Christ would bring on the world's behalf of overcoming sin and death. Jesus is worthy of worship for this. But it also declares that he is worthy of saving. Jesus is worthy to save. While praying and praising God from Psalm 118, the people are blind to what God is doing in their midst through Jesus. They claim Psalm 118, Hosanna in the highest, but they neglect Isaiah 53, Zechariah 9, 13:1, Passages promising the Messiah's meekness and humility to suffer the punishment for his people. I think it's right to read Isaiah 53 and hold these two in tension because it reveals how God will bring the salvation that Hosanna declares. Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on Him, and we were healed by His wounds. Yet the Lord was pleased to crush Him severely. When you make Him a guilt offering, He will see His seed. He will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, 
and will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mighty as spoil, because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. See, the people rightly proclaim, Hosanna in the highest heaven. God in the highest heaven, save us now. And what is God's response? I am. See, the people are blind to their position of enmity with God and their enslavement to sin. So where Psalm 118 declares what God will do, Isaiah 53 reveals how he will do it. For it is always and has always been God's plan for his servant king to suffer for his people. And that's a message hard to accept. When you want your king, your ruler, your master to be the sign of strength that you yourself know you don't have, for that king to then say, I will suffer death, that reveals the last point of who Jesus is. Jesus is not who people want. People don't want a king that suffers. They want a king they can rally to. Verse 10 and 11. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in an uproar, saying, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. The crowd's conclusion about Jesus is that he's a prophet, a man with inspiration from God to reveal God's purpose. That's not wrong, but it is incomplete. They attest to Jesus' divine appointment, stopping short of recognizing his divine nature. Even the divine appointment is ultimately questions when he reveals his intentions to purify the people of God by cleansing the temple mere moments after this. And if we include other triumphal entry accounts, we'll read of there's a lot of reactions to Jesus as he enters the city. I think it's worth going through four people or four groups, if you will, and the reaction to Jesus to recognize what ought to be ours. The first is the crowd's reaction to Jesus' entry. What we just read here in Matthew 10, verse, or Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, but also in Mark chapter 10, verse 11, we read that the people respond with praise because they believe Jesus will bring a kingdom of prosperity and special honor. Yet they're not teachable nor humble to receive God's correction on their motivation and desires. In fact, God prophesied, and as they have already produced throughout the, the Jewish people's history in Isaiah chapter 30, that the people ultimately silence their prophets. Despite proclaiming that Jesus is one, they act just like their forefathers before them. Read with me in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 and 10. God declares they, this is the people, his people, the Israelites, are a rebellious people. Deceptive children, children who do not want to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, do not see. And the prophets, do not prophesy the truth to us. Tell us flattering things. Prophesy illusions. Ugh. This is proving true. Though they declare him to be a prophet and God's uh, servant with divine inspiration, they reject him when he declares what he is doing as a prophet. And they will silence Jesus. Four days later, how will they tell him to stop prophesying? How will they tell him to stop seeing? What will they shout over him and his voice? Crucify him. Crucify him. A mere four days later. See, the crowd is a mob and fickle at heart. 
only wanting what pleases and tickles their ears. This is the crowd's response to Jesus, merely what Jesus can do for them. What about the disciples? What's their response to the triumphal entry? Well, ultimately, they had a similar blindness to the crowd overall. They began the shouts of praise, got swept up in the commotion of celebration as Israel's king enters into the city. I am sure the 12 are excited because they're going to be his co-regents of Israel. They're going to be his royal council. I, I think in this moment, Judas is probably right in line. I like what is happening. Yet unlike the crowds, there's hope for them, most of them. As John reveals in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 16, this is what he writes, the disciples did not understand these things at first. However, when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. They were teachable, able to leave behind their former ignorance. I hope that's true of us. Now let's look at the most interesting reaction to Jesus and his triumphal entry, the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the high priests. Ultimately, what was their response to Jesus' triumphal entry? The jealousy of their heart was filled to a capacity that now they are convinced with pure resolve to kill Jesus and Lazarus. Look at me, read with me in John chapter 12, verses 10 and 19. This is the religious leaders speaking to themselves as made... Many of the Jews were deserting them and believing in Jesus. And then we read further that one of the Pharisees said to another, after the triumphal entry, you see, you've accomplished nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so as jealousy and rage and anger has now filled the religious leaders' hearts, Jesus knows with certainty the state of their hearts. And he enters into the city as a way to speed up the, their timeline and increase their resolve to murder him to end this pest in their life. Yet there's an interesting interaction that though they are misguided by their jealousy and their rage, they utter something that is actually right and true. The religious leaders got something right, just like the crowd. In John, we read that they petitioned Jesus to rebuke his disciples for their praise. Tell them to be quiet. Shut them up. And you know what? They have a point. Even though their motivation is out of jealousy, they're correct in describing to Jesus that the praise being issued him is imperfect, insufficient, and born out of wrong motive. Why are they correct? Well, they are like their father, the devil, as Jesus has rebuked them earlier in their ministry. The devil is the great accuser, pointing out every flaw and fault in God's people. And the Pharisees act according to their master. So they get a point right. The praise being issued and rendered to Jesus is not really ultimately worthy of him. But what's his response? We've looked at the rest. What's Jesus' response to this triumphal entry? His response is filled with grace and mercy. The response of Jesus in this moment as the Pharisees are rebuking the, the people for their insufficient, imperfect praise, you know what Jesus does in this moment? He accepts it. Jesus accepts the praise of imperfect people. He received their praise ultimately because it is right, even if it was misinformed. He responds to the Pharisees in Luke 19, verse 40, when he tells them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, 
the stones would cry out, for the glory of God is returning to the, the city of God. And so Jesus' mercy and grace are extended to a lost and blind people because he is gentle and lowly at heart, able to lift them out of their ignorance and shame. And so what does Jesus do? He responds perfectly to imperfect people. Praise God we have a Lord and Messiah that shows grace and mercy first. But that's not his final response. His final response is out of sorrow. We read in Luke that as he approaches the city, he saw the city and wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Jesus foretells the coming destruction of Jerusalem by the hands of the Romans in A.D. 70 and the destruction of the temple. And he weeps for his people. The grief and burden to their blindness is overwhelming to him. He weeps for them dearly despite their inability to love them back. He issues and fulfills all the commands of him being both Lord and Messiah. And so why is this even a triumph? What victory is to be had here? Well, the victory of God bringing his promise to completion in Jesus. The plan that began all the way back in the garden for God to suffer death on behalf of his people. Death, a death he will render on behalf of his people to defeat death, to pardon the guilty, to transform a people from rebels to co-heirs and co-regents to rule with him. The triumphal entry is a, a magnificent depiction of what Christ came to do in totality. And so I assume some of you came here today with an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is, yet there's still a desire to worship, is there not? You may not fully know him, but you still long to worship him. That is good and that is right. Others harbor bitterness towards Christ for misunderstanding what he would accomplish for you. And you're wrestling with what he provided rather than what you assumed. Others might even oppose Jesus, denying he is Lord or Messiah or both Lord and Messiah. But most of us here probably know Jesus well, yet are gripped by the guilt of continued sin in our life. That he is not our Lord in the way we operate, live, and so you came to service today wishing to trade your spiritual palm fronds, if you will, with the others in this room, desperately asking, I'd rather have their life than mine. I would like to trade, but to no avail, no one will trade with you, nor no one can. But you're in good company because there is one who has already traded with you, and he is both Lord and Messiah, trading our guilt and shame for his life of righteousness of praise, worthy to be in the presence of God. He trades that with us freely and willingly. But first, he must be the Messiah, the burden bearer of sin who must go to the cross and bear sin's ultimate punishment of death. And so will you trade your life for his? Will you trade your defeat for his triumph? That ought to be our cry of praise. But we are as fickle as the crowd and we forget. 
which is why we read the triumphal entry again and again as a reminder that what, was, what once was a victory centuries ago remains a victory to this day, that the glory of God has come into this world. He lived a perfect life, died an atoning death, and rose again on the third day that all might have victory in him and those who believe in his message. And so that what lays before you this holy week. Is that the victory that you hold on to? Is it the motivation that propels you to worship and praise? It ought to be. For Jesus Christ is both Lord and Messiah. Let's worship him as such today. Would you pray with me? Father God, I pray that many people in here would receive the blessing of our new life in your son. I pray that we will receive you and worship you and praise you with gladness and adoration. Father, for my brothers and sisters in this room who are gripped by sin's guilt and uncertainty and feel the accusations of the Pharisees that ah, they should shut their mouths in praise for they would render imperfect and proper worship. Lord, would you silence those lies this morning and through your spirit propel many in here to proclaim what is right and true regardless of the state of our life. For we know if we were to keep silent, the very stones would cry out in proclamation that your son is both our Lord and Messiah. Lord, be our encourager this morning. May we worship you in spirit and in truth. And would you confer upon us the victory that your son accomplished for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.